reading is from Matthew chapter 5. I'll start with verse 1. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its whole saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Well, this is my uh, first week in three weeks to preach. And so I didn't plan on this, but my notes are a bit longer than normal. We can blame that on me having two weeks off or we can just, we can just roll with it. Um, in all reality, it's really wonderful to be back with you. I had planned a week off two weeks ago. Rob did a wonderful job bringing the word for us. And then last week, of course, I got sick and got to call Sam on Saturday evening and be like, hey, buddy, want to preach in the morning? And obviously, Sam did a wonderful job last week. It was a little weird being home and listening to Sam preach in the recording because it felt self-serving to say amen um, because Sam was using my notes. And so anytime I was like, that's a good point, Sam, you know, good job, preacher. Uh, you know, obviously every week when I'm preparing notes, I'm preaching to myself as well. I need to hear these words just as much as any of you. Sam, I do have one critique, though. You took out one of my best really bad jokes in there. So, you know, that, that's the one, one critique from it all. So I do have a funny story to share before I dive into our sermon today. A couple weeks ago, we were at our district conference for the Christian Missionary Alliance, and Sam and I look a little alike, if you guys haven't noticed. I, you know, we're big, bald, bearded men, and we're also from Texas, and so every once in a while, we have our drawl that'll come out. Um, and so I was leading a devotional at our district conference and, uh, you know, delivered it and thought I did a good job. And then someone later on came up to Sam and said, hey, great job on the devotional uh, in the morning. So obviously we look a little bit alike. Sam was the one that taught last week. So anything that you had wrong with it, even though I wrote it, just see Sam about that. Um, he's the one that you need to take all that to. 
Well, today we're starting a new series called Life According to Jesus. And this is going to be six weeks that we're going to sprint through the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And this is one of those series that I've been really excited to bring to us since I came to North Country Alliance Church because the Sermon on the Mount is one of those sermons and one of those pieces of scripture that really have the power to transform our lives. And I know that goes without saying because we're talking about the words of Jesus. Like, obviously these have the power to transform our life. But there's something about the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus spells out what it looks like to live life. What it truly looks like for us to yield ourselves to his ways and not our own way. And so while all of scripture is life-giving, while all of scripture is good, I think there's something to us taking a step back taking a break and diving into the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon, and just slowly going through it. And so we're going to be going over this the next six weeks or so. I do have a week that I won't be here, so we'll take a, take a week off, and then we'll come back to it. But I want to issue a challenge in the forefront. This is something that I decided this morning, and this is a scary thing to me, but I'm going to try and memorize the Sermon on the Mount. So over the next six weeks, it's going to be my goal to memorize Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So you don't have to do that. If you want that challenge, go for it. But at the very least, I'm going to challenge you to read through the Sermon on the Mount daily. Over the next six weeks, read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 daily. And just spend time with the words of Jesus. Spend time dwelling on who Jesus is, what he says about this life, how we're supposed to live, and watch your life begin to be transformed. Because this is the power. Jesus is the word of life. And so let's go ahead and start looking at Matthew 5, 1 through 16. And I want to ask us the question, have you ever considered what it means to be blessed? Like, have you, have you really considered what it means to be blessed? You know, we say this a lot in our culture. Well, I'm blessed and highly favored, brother. Well, yes, but what does that truly mean? This is a term that the world even uses a lot. If you want to have some fun, you can go on social media today and look up hashtag blessed. And you'll see an abundance of things on social media that talk about what people think the blessed life is. And so some people will think that the blessed life is hitting 12 green lights in a row. I know we don't know anything about traffic here in Plattsburgh, but if we were back in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, like hitting 12 green lights in a row, yeah, that's a, that's a blessing. Like, come on, traffic is bad. We don't want to sit there for 17 hours in traffic. Some people may think that is the blessed life. Some people may think getting an unexpected discount is being blessed, or being able to purchase a luxury car is blessed. It's God showing favor. But I don't want to pick on our world too much because we do the same thing. Uh-oh. It's okay if the pastor talks about the world, but it's something a little bit different to talk about you and me, us. There, there's something here where we don't really know what the blessed life looks like. I think oftentimes if we look at how we talk, there are some subtle and some not-so-subtle things that we say that are actually rooted in a false prosperity gospel than in the true gospel of Jesus. A false gospel that says we need to have more, 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 instead of one that says done, done, done. This is something that we need to have reevaluated. 
The true blessed life is found in Jesus. It's not found in our situation. It's not found in whatever circumstance we see in this life. Blessing comes through relationship with Jesus. And this was just as much a problem in Jesus' day as it is ours. The people of Jesus' day had no clue what blessing ultimately looks like. And that's why he begins his sermon on the mount this way, by talking about the blessed life. Because he wants to redefine what true blessing looks like. What does it truly mean to be blessed by God? And so these teachings at the beginning of Matthew 5 are what we call the Beatitudes. And if you're like me who didn't grow up all the way in the church, I came to really start following Jesus in my teenage years. I would start reading through scripture and I came to Beatitudes as the heading line. And I'll be honest. I pronounced it beatitudes or beatitudes. It's beatitudes, and it comes from a Latin word. So I told you Latin was going to come in handy the other day. There's one of those few times where it actually comes. It really doesn't most of the time. So let's talk about this word, blessed. It's used nine times in Matthew 5, 1 through 16. And the Greek word here is merikaros. But you all already knew that, right? Like, I know you guys are fluent, Greek, Hebrew, Latin, like, you got this all down. Well, this word makarios is something that was used by ancient Greeks to, to many times describe their gods. There are many, many, many gods, and they would use this to signify a transcendent quality where the gods weren't really concerned about human affairs. They didn't have to worry themselves about human struggles, so they were blessed in that regard. They didn't have the, the average daily life. But interestingly, in the ancient world, they would also use this word to describe the dead. They were also considered blessed or or supremely happy, which is what the word blessed ultimately means, because they no longer had to deal with the mundane humdrum of the everyday life. They were dead. They didn't have to worry about it anymore, and so they were also considered blessed. And then the final way it was often used in the ancient world is kind of how you and I think of it today, is when people would, would use it to talk about people that don't really have to deal with the average everyday human life. They were blessed, they were wealthy, they were, they were powerful, they had something different about them. But this isn't the type of blessing that Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about this complete separation from the daily difficult life. Instead, he's talking about true life in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of all the things that we go through on a daily basis. And if we take a step back and we take the the 20,000-foot view of the Gospel of Matthew, we see that Matthew is ultimately concerned about showing Jesus as the rightful king of Israel. So if we look at throughout scripture, we have four different gospels, and each of the gospels have a different theme to them. Matthew's theme is about presenting Jesus as the rightful king of Israel. He's trying to show that this Jesus is the one that fulfills all the promises about the coming king of Israel. And so what we're seeing in Matthew is Matthew trying to do that. But the problem that Matthew ultimately has and that first century Christians have, is that they had to overcome what people were expecting a king to look like. And they were expecting a king that didn't really look like Jesus. And so when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, it's Jesus, one, showing that his kingdom looks like something different than they expected. 
It wasn't at all what they thought it wasn't what it was going to look like because the people of Israel were thinking that this freedom, this coming Messiah was all about their physical freedom. It was all about them being liberated from Roman rule and Roman occupation. But that's not what Jesus is primarily concerned about. Jesus is primarily concerned about their spiritual freedom. And so what we see in Jesus isn't a conquering king or a warrior king or or a mighty king. We see a meek king, a humble king, a lowly king who values the prayer of a sinner over the one that is self-righteous, as he says in one of his parables. Knowing this, it's no wonder that Jesus begins his famous sermon with a reorientation, with an invitation to think about things differently, to see that his kingdom is altogether different than what we had expected it to be. So before we officially dive in to these statements, I want to just give out a warning. Or more of just a heart check for us. When we're diving into the the sayings of Jesus, like I've said, they have the power to transform us. They are life themselves, and if we'll pay attention to them, if we'll lean into them, they have the ability to show us how to live life to the full, as Jesus would say elsewhere in his gospel. John Wesley would describe these statements, these beatitudes that we're talking about, as a sweet invitation to true holiness and happiness. They have a transformative power to them. Commentaries far and wide would say that these statements are descriptors of what it fully looks like to live the authentic Christian life. And so when we come to these, know that that's what they're designed for. They're designed to help us live life to the full, to see the way of Jesus. But I want to let you in on a little secret. Jesus doesn't always rub us the right way. Jesus doesn't always agree with us. In fact, more often than not, as we read through the words of Jesus, they sting a little bit. They pierce a little bit because we allow them through the Holy Spirit to show us the ways in which we're not meeting those. The ways in which we're not living up to the ways that Jesus has called us to live. And so throughout this series, including today, we're going to be challenged. We're going to be rubbed the wrong way. But I want to tell you something. The place of friction is the precursor to growth. When we feel that friction, when we feel that difficulty, if we lean into it, That's the place of growth. If we'll allow these sayings of Jesus to really take root in our hearts, they will transform us. They will lead us to the life of true happiness. But if we're concerned with living life our way, well, then they're just going to be words on a page. They're just going to be really old things in a book to us. They're not going to have life themselves. But if we approach them in humbleness, in meekness, seeing Jesus for who he is, change can happen. So let's dive in. You guys okay with this? Okay, good. I'm glad you're with me this morning. Remember, we're talking a long time this morning. we got a lot of scripture to go through, and apparently after not preaching for two weeks, I just keep throwing stuff in there. Sorry. Okay, let's start in verse 3. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh-oh, right out of the gate. Like Jesus' first saying he's already changing things up on people. Because when Jesus says the poor there, 
our English translations don't ultimately help us too much. When Jesus says poor, he isn't talking about someone who's down on their luck. In fact, the word that he's using is using the, the imagery of someone who is a beggar, who has to fully rely upon someone else for their, their sustenance, for everything about them. They're the poorest of the poor, and that's who Jesus is ultimately highlighting here. And what's interesting about this is that people in Jesus' day wouldn't consider beggars blessed. I mean, you and I probably wouldn't consider beggars blessed. In fact, most people in the first century would consider beggars to be judged by God. They're not blessed by God. God is judging them. They've done something wrong or their family has done something wrong. We see that elsewhere throughout Jesus' teachings. And ultimately, Jesus is using this word to kind of shock us a little bit. He's saying, blessed are the poor, and then he adds, in spirit. And so we know Jesus isn't talking about physical poverty here. He's talking about something different. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And so what Jesus is talking about here is this idea of spiritual poverty. And this idea of spiritual poverty may be something that we don't think of often, or it may be something that makes us turn our head a little quizzically. But when Jesus is saying this idea of spiritual poverty or being poor in spirit, he's using that same imagery of that of a beggar. It's someone that has to rely on someone else for their righteousness, to have this vibrant spirituality. And this is the truth that we need to understand because Jesus is saying here that the people that have the blessed life, the people that are blessed aren't the ones that rely on their own righteousness like those of the Pharisees that he's constantly butting heads against. And says, instead he says those that are blessed are the ones who recognize that they can't measure up on their own. That they don't have it within themselves. It's the news that we find throughout Scripture. And in the book of Romans in particular, we see that all have sinned, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. All includes you and me. We've all fallen short. And there's even more news that the wages of this sin is death. We deserve death. We deserve separation. But there's some good news there as well. The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. We deserve this. You and I cannot live a good enough life to earn the kingdom of heaven. We can't inherit it on our own. There's nothing that we can do to measure up or to pull ourselves up from our bootstraps. Sorry, still recovering. We've all sinned. We kid ourselves if we think we can ever be good enough. What, what is good enough? By, by whose standard, by whose measurement? None of us are good enough. The kingdom of heaven instead belongs to those who recognize that they can't get there on their own. They must rely on someone else. In Romans 4, 7 through 8, Paul quotes a psalm by saying this. He says, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. That's the blessed life, where our sins have been forgiven, where our transgressions are forgiven. <coughs> See, what Jesus does, he sees our sin. He looks 
at you and me. He sees all the things that we've done. And instead of looking at us and say, do better. Come on, you can, you can do better. Just, just pull yourself up. You can overcome. Come on, why do you keep struggling with the same things over and over and over and over again? It's not what Jesus says to us. Instead, Jesus says to us, come to me. I will take on your sin. I will take the punishment. I will be the one that steps in and say, while they can't do it, while they keep failing over and over and over again, I can do it. I can take their place. I can take their punishment. And that's what he does. And he invites us into that place of throwing ourselves at his feet and saying, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. I can't measure up, but I know one who is. I know one who can do it. And in Jesus is where the freedom is at. So you and I must recognize our need for God's mercy and grace. That's how we receive it. We begin by saying that we're poor in spirit. That we have this place of spiritual poverty and we need Jesus to bridge the gap. Let's look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now the mourning that Jesus is talking about here is not about mourning over the loss of a loved one. Though the Lord certainly mourns with those who mourn, is close to those who are brokenhearted. I don't want to underscore that whatsoever. The Lord does see that and he does care for you. He is there with you in your mourning. But that's not what Jesus is ultimately talking about here. What Jesus is referring to here is the mourning over our own brokenness. If we read through the Old Testament time and time again, prophets would encourage the people of God to mourn over their sins so that God would respond and restore them. In 1 Corinthians 5, we, we talked about this several weeks ago, Paul tells the people in Corinth to mourn because of a grievous sin that was being committed in their midst. If we go to James 4, verses 8 through 10, he, he actually does the same thing, and I want to read it to us. He says this, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. The message of Scripture is that there should be some dissatisfaction with our current state. There should be some dissatisfaction with sin inside of us. We weren't meant to live lives filled with sin. We weren't meant to do it. That isn't what God designed us for. He designed us for life with him, a full life, a good life, a perfect life. But we're unable to do that because of the fall. We're unable to live this life, and so we need a comforter. We need someone who will bridge the gap, who will take our place. And that's what Jesus does. He takes our place. That comforter, the Holy Spirit, he not only reminds us of our standing in Jesus, but he also equips us for the fruit-filled life, to live this life that's pleasing to God fully. And so our charge is to draw near to God. That's simple, draw near to God. 
In our, in our sin, in our brokenness, God doesn't say, run from me. He says, come to me. And that's the beauty of the gospel. He says, come to me. So that's what we get to do, you and I, over our sin and our brokenness. Listen to the words of Paul in Romans 7. He's talking about the, this difficulty of wanting to do the things of God, but having the struggles of the flesh at the same time. That was fun. And he ends by saying this in Romans 7. What a wretched man that I am. Anyone ever feel that before? You want to do the things of God, but you're still struggling with the flesh, and all you can proclaim is, what a wretched man I am. He goes on to ask the question, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And he ends, thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. We mourn over our sin. We mourn over our brokenness. We, we come to God in that way. It's a step to fully following Jesus. It's acknowledging that the things that we've done grieve God. That they don't measure up, that they're not right. But God doesn't leave us in that place. That's the, the beauty of it. He doesn't just say mourn and, and have difficulty and look at all the bad things that you've done. He comforts us. He brings us peace. He brings us the hope of eternal life with Jesus. Listen to Psalm 30, verses 11 and 12. You turned my mourning into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and covered me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. We mourn over our sin. and We come to God and he says, no longer no longer be there in that place. No longer be there in that lowly place. I have made you whole. I will turn your mourning into dancing. I will turn this wailing and this weeping into pure joy. That's what God does in salvation. He turns all the difficulty of our life, all of our sin, all of our struggle, and he redeems it. And he gives us new life in him. So let's be people that recognize our sin. Let's be people that recognize the sin of the world. Let's mourn about it and let's bring it to God and allow him to transform it into eternal hope. Verse 5, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. And I don't know about you, but uh, from my observation, meekness isn't something that tends to be valued much in our culture. It's not something that, that's valued much. We're told to be bold, to take charge, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, to set goals and go after it. That's the, the resounding message that we hear over and over. If you want to be successful, you have to go get it. You have to live the hashtag hustle life. I don't know why I keep saying hashtag. Apparently this is brought to you by Twitter today. This is not what Jesus says. He doesn't tell us that this is how life should be lived. He says the meek will inherit the earth. The meek? The, the, the timid is maybe how we would think of that word, but that's not what Jesus thinks about that word. He thinks gentleness or mild, as opposed to bombastic, which is one of my favorite words, or intense. Meekness is this place where we humble ourselves. 
we recognize that I'm just a man. There's nothing in me that's special. And the phrase inherit the earth there refers to the promised reign of Christ over all the earth at Jesus' second coming. Jesus is promising here that those who are meek, those who humble themselves will be in his kingdom. Not the ones who who pound their chest and say, look at me, I'm something. But the ones who lower themselves, who say, I'm nothing without Jesus. It's an invitation to do life differently, to realize that Jesus is the one who's in charge, and that our inheritance in him is beyond our imagination. Have Have you thought about that? Have you thought about what the inheritance you have in him ultimately looks like? Because it will change your life. If you have a vision for the coming life of the eternal life, you'll live your life differently. Not just that your, your sins have been forgiven, but what's to come. Life in Christ for all eternity. I want to read from Revelation 21, 1 through 4, to help you hopefully have just a glimpse of this. This is John seeing this revelation, and he says this, Then I saw a new heaven. And a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them forever. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's a, that's a phrase throughout the Old Testament that occurs again and again and again. And then I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is the ultimate fulfillment of that. And verse 4 says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain For the old order of things has passed away. The corrupted creation passed away and a glorious new creation has come. No more pain. No more mourning over the loss of a loved one. No more blindness. No more physical ailments in our bodies. Just this beautiful life where we're fully known by God, fully loved by God, forever in his presence. He's there with us for all eternity, and what we will be fixated on is our King of Kings. This Jesus, who we can't help but sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Glory, glory, glory. It's all we can help but cry out because of how good our God is. So the reason that I share that is, one, it's a good reminder for us. This idea of meekness is something that we need to grasp in light of what eternity is going to look like. Because God doesn't need you to put on your boxing gloves or to, to take out your sword and to fight his battles. I know we sing, this is how I fight my battles like 1,700 times. I never know how we're supposed to fight our battles in that song. He just says, this is how I fight my battles like over and over again. But then I love the Phil Wickham song, the battle belongs to the Lord. Because that's where the battle ultimately belongs. 
He doesn't need us to put on our gloves and go and fight and wage war in order to establish his kingdom. God is the one who establishes his kingdom. He doesn't need us to be bombastic and yell at all the people that are doing the wrong thing. He needs us to live a life of meekness, of humility, of love. One where people see us and see the gospel lived out. One in which we can tell people of the good news of Jesus and do it from a place of love. Jesus calls us to the meek place, to the humble place, to love our enemies. Ouch. It's a hard one to do. We'll see in a moment, he even calls us to rejoice and be glad when people persecute us. Come on, Jesus, that's not how life works. We're not supposed to do that. Move on to verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is a theme throughout Scripture where God promises that those who are hungry and thirsty will be fully satisfied. That there's coming this food that's without end, this water that's without end where you'll take a bite and you'll take a sip and you'll never hunger or thirst again. We see this throughout the books of prophecy. We find that fulfillment in Jesus. It's found in Jesus. Isaiah said it like this, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters and you who have no money, come buy and eat. How are we supposed to do that, Isaiah? We don't have any money. How do we come buy and eat? Because it's the free gift of God. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost is what he says. The gift of salvation is the free gift of God. Jesus is the living water that we get to come to. The reality is that our hunger is something that's satisfied when we come to Jesus. But it's also something that must be renewed over and over again. Unfortunately, it doesn't just stop at the moment of salvation, unless you guys have figured something out about the Christian life that I haven't had. Because when I live the Christian life, I still struggle. I still have difficulty. I still have sin in my life. There's still something that doesn't measure up. And I hunger and I thirst for righteousness. I hunger and thirst for the inner positional reality to become the external vocational reality. I hunger and thirst to be transformed into the image of Christ. And this is where that tension of the already but not yet kingdom comes into play. Because Jesus is currently enthroned in heaven. Before him, we are considered righteous if we're in Christ. And one day, Jesus will come back to earth. Like we just read in Revelation 21. And all the pain, all the suffering, all the difficulty will be wiped away. We'll be made fully perfect before him. Right now, we live in that tension. That place where we hunger and thirst for righteousness. In Romans 8 Paul describes this process as being conformed to the image of Christ. We hunger and thirst for righteousness so that we'll be conformed to the image of Christ. So that it can have its fullness in us. This is the process of sanctification and it's ongoing, unfortunately. It doesn't just happen all at a moment. It starts in a moment, but it progresses over time, where we're slowly but surely transformed more and more into the image of Christ. In the meantime, there's a longing within us, this hunger, this thirst, but there's a promise. 
that we will be filled. It's going to happen. We will be filled. This is what, jo- what Jesus says in John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now there's some trickiness in, in the Greek there for that word believes. Because that word literally means trust or has allegiance to. It's not fairy belief, it's something deeper than that. It's placing our full self at the foot of Jesus and saying, I trust you completely. I declare my allegiance to you wholly. And so that's what we're called to do, to trust in Jesus. Through being with him by faith in both his death and resurrection. And through that, we're slowly but surely transformed into the image of Christ. Where we have this life of overflowing joy in him. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Jesus once again persists in declaring that the kingdom of God is found where it isn't expected. I don't know about you guys. I, I can make a guess. I don't think your natural bent is to show mercy at all times, right? Maybe, maybe you guys are much better than I am in this life. But I don't always want to show mercy. I don't want to always show grace. And by and large, as humanity, we're not bent to being merciful. We're bent to being ruthless. When we're wronged, we desire punishment. We want to crush our enemies. We want to vanquish them. That's not what the kingdom of God looks like. That's not the vision that Jesus gives us. God is merciful. It's who he is. It's how God describes himself. And this is one of the pervading themes throughout the Sermon on the Mount is that we're called to reflect that. If God is merciful and we're created in his image, then we're created to be merciful as well. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we're met with some difficult things for us in our flesh. We're called to turn the other cheek. That's not fun. To go the extra mile. To give even our most vital belongings. And to even pray, Jesus tells us, this crazy prayer where we say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Well, that's difficult. Coming to God and say, forgive me as I've forgiven others? That's a difficult one for us to do. And Peter, I love Peter throughout Scripture because he's always doing what we would ultimately do. And later on, after hearing Jesus talk about this on the Sermon on the Mount, he's like, okay, I get it, Jesus. I'm supposed to be merciful. And in Matthew 18, Peter's like, okay, I'm going to see just how merciful I'm supposed to be in this life. And so he comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? And this is where where Peter thinks he's being really clever. He's like, what if I do it seven times, Jesus? Like, that sounds like a lot of forgiveness to give to someone. Seven times is surely enough. Is that that good, Jesus? Have Have I gotten this message of being merciful? And Jesus just does one of these numbers. He says, Peter, not seven times. He either says 77 times or 70 times 7. We don't exactly know what it is. But the point is, either way, it's a lot of times to forgive someone that's wronged us. 
God's forgiveness towards us is grand, and we must do the same towards others. And Jesus ultimately tries to to take home this point by telling a story. It's what what Jesus does time and time again. And he tells this story in Matthew 18, which I encourage you to go read. I'm going to not read it for the sake of time. But he tells this story in Matthew 18 of this man who owes lifetimes worth of money to a king. Like more money than he could ever earn in multiple lifetimes. And he owes it to this king and, and he goes to the king, and the king ultimately forgives him of his debt. But instead of then living that out and having that take root in his life, the man then goes to another man who owes him money. And it's about, uh, about three months' worth of wages. And he goes to the man, and he says, pay back everything you owe to me. And he even starts physically harming the man by choking him. He's received a great mercy, but it didn't do anything to him. It didn't change his life. And then the king responds by going to the man and throws him in prison to be tortured and tells him that you have to pay back everything that you owe to me. The debt that I had forgiven, you have to pay it back fully. And this was an impossible task because it was several lifetimes worth of money. And Jesus ends in Matthew 18, 35, by saying, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. See, like the man in the story, our debt has been canceled by the king. It's a debt that we could never possibly pay back. And we're called then to be transformed by that. To show mercy to those who sometimes it's hard to show mercy to to forgive those who have wronged us but oftentimes we're more like the man in the story and we're harsh with others who wronged us now don't get me wrong life in jesus mean there are going to be times where we're going to be wrong jesus promises it by even talking about it here he's telling us to be merciful he says there are going to be times where you're going to need to be merciful So the blessed life isn't this life where everything goes our way, where everything is just uh, happiness all the time, where nothing ever goes wrong. Things are going to go wrong. People are going to hurt you. It's not always going to be easy. But what God invites us to is the blessed life, of living this life of forgiveness, of mercy. I I want you to listen to me closely for just a moment. Unforgiveness will kill your spiritual life. It is the deadliest foe besides complacency. We'll give give Tozer, you know, complacency is the deadliest foe, but right next to that, unforgiveness. It is the one that will kill your spiritual life. Because if you dwell in this place of unforgiveness, eventually it will convince you that your own sin can't be forgiven by God. If there's someone who sinned against you that you can't possibly forgive, surely my sin against God is more grievous than that. And how could he ever possibly forgive me? Forgive. This is the way of Jesus. It's difficult. It's hard. It's not easy. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. But it does lead to the life that Jesus would have you live. So look at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You guys, you guys doing okay? I know we're talking a little bit longer. I don't see anyone falling asleep just yet. If you do, I got some beanbags that I'll toss you away. Okay. 
Just kidding. Okay, we can jump up and do a jumping jack every once in a while. I think you guys are good. Okay, verse 8. We'll get through this, I promise. Not every sermon's this long, I promise. I'm normally about 40 minutes. We're going a little bit longer today. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, the pure in heart, like we've talked about already, are those who are so not by their own actions. They are pure because they've been cleansed by God and then seek to walk in his ways. And you, for you and I, God has provided this cleansing. We don't have to make ourselves holy. We don't have to do it on our own. God is the one who provides the cleansing. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. He says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is him saying that there's no such thing as being good enough. Like, you've all sinned, you've all fallen short. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And maybe you're going through that list and you're like, oh, well, dang it, dang it, dang it. And we, can, we can see that list, but then Paul gives us this at the end. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by, by the Spirit of our God. On our own, we're not pure in heart. We've all sinned, we don't measure up, we've all done a number of things that we're not proud of in this life and that we know God doesn't see as holy and good and righteous. But the good news is that we can come to Jesus. Even in our sin, because while we were still sinners, Christ showed his love for us by dying for us. That's what scripture tells us. And so we get to come to him, and he is the one who washes us. He is the one who makes us clean. And so our, then our, our charge after that is to simply abide in him, to remain in him, to continue to follow him, not just to get our get-out-of-hell-free card and be like, okay, see you later, Jesus. No, to live the true life. Not being the vampire Christian that, that Sam talked about last week that Dallas Willard shared of. We will fall. We will fail. We're not going to do this life perfectly. But God is faithful to restore us time and time and time again. But only if we come to him through Jesus. There's no other way of salvation. There's no such thing as being a good enough person. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. Without a relationship with Jesus, we're destined for eternal hell. But thank God. Thank God that through Jesus we can be purified. And he doesn't just wash the outside. He doesn't just sprinkle us a little bit, but he transforms us from the inside out. He makes all things new. Okay, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I, I think this one statement is the one that would get, get Jesus canceled today. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Jesus, I don't want to be a peacemaker. I want to I flip tables like you did. Come on, Jesus. I don't want to be the peacemaker. This would be the statement that gets Jesus canceled. But Christ is our peacemaker. He is the one who makes peace between us and God. And he calls us to follow in his footsteps. We are God's children if we walk in the commands of God. 
We are to be about our Father's business as participants in his kingdom. As peacemakers, it means that we shouldn't fight all of the things that we could fight about. All of the things that that show up on social media that we're supposed to be outraged about. We don't need to fight about all of those things. Instead, we can be peacemakers. We can walk in the place of peace and be like, hey, maybe it isn't about life here. Maybe it isn't about all of these things, but it is about this eternal life. This good life where we can find true happiness, true joy, true peace through the person of Jesus. See, you and I, our greatest task is to help people see the peace of God. To come to the reality that Jesus is the one who can make them righteous. Who Jesus is the one who can forgive all of their sins. That is our greatest task here on the earth. That's what we should be about. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is our calling. If we have been reconciled to God, we are supposed to then be ministers of reconciliation. It's not just a job for the pastors or or the missionaries or the professional Christians. It's a job for all of us. To take this message that we've received forgiveness, that we've received salvation, and take it to a world that desperately needs it. So you and I have to decide what type of ambassadors we're going to be in this world. Are we going to be ambassadors of our way of life or our jobs or or any number of things, including politics or, or whatever, fill in the blank there, what type of ambassador you want to be? Or are we going to realize that life is about something different? That there's a greater thing that we can be about and become ambassadors of God's kingdom. And if you want to know where you stand on this, and this is one of those painful things, so I invite you to do it with caution, but I really, really invite you to do it. If you want to know what type of ambassador you are, take an inventory on what you speak about. What are your conversations filled with? Are they filled with the things of God, or are they filled with all these other things? You talk about God's word more than you talk about what's on the news media? What do you consume? Are you spending time in God's word? Are you spending time drawing near to him? Are you spending time in prayer? Are you allowing all the other things to flood your thoughts? Now, those things aren't necessarily bad on their own. There's There's a place for them. But if they consume us, that's where the difficulty is. So take an inventory. I really invite you to do that because it will be challenging. It will be difficult. It will make you be like, ah, dang it i got to do something a bit different. But ultimately, you and I have been reconciled to God. If we are in Christ, we are new creations. The old has passed away, the new has come, and we are called his children. And so let's take that news to others. Let's take that message to others. Okay, this last little part. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The way of Jesus is not one in which everything goes your way. In fact, if we're living correctly, if we're doing the things of Jesus, we will face trials. We will face adversaries. It's countercultural to live a Sermon on the Mount lifestyle. We must be willing to live how Jesus has instructed us to live. And if we face persecution for that, then we take up our boxing gloves and fight. No, no. Great. Rejoice and be glad that we're counted worthy to suffer reproach for our Savior because he's done so much for us. If we've seen the light, if we've seen the goodness of Jesus, then let's be people that reflect the light. Yes, persecution will come, but that shouldn't matter because our reward is greater than any persecution we might face. We're not called to take up arms and fight against those who persecute us. Instead, we're called to be faithful witnesses in the midst of chaos. Listen to how Jesus ends in verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is how we live this out. Yes, there are going to be trials. Yes, there are going to be difficulties but we're supposed to be salt and light. We're supposed to be salty, not, not angry. Sorry, I, I messed it up. It was supposed to be, you're supposed to be salt and light, not salty and lit, but, you know, I, I messed up the saying, I'm only human. That's why it needs God's mercy and grace more and more. We're to embrace the lifestyle that Jesus has spelled out for us. People will oppose our message. It's going to happen. Let's, do, let's respond in a way that honors Jesus. Not fighting fire with fire, but showing them the mercy and the grace and the love and the peace and the joy that we talk about, that we say that we've received. Let's meet fire with love and grace and joy. Let me try and tie this all together for us. These sayings of Jesus on the blessed life, they provide us with an introduction to what it means to live a life that's devoted to the kingdom of God. Jesus has invited all of us into the more excellent way. Not life how we think it should be lived, but life how he thinks it should be lived. It's a way that's altogether different than the way of the world. It's altogether different than our, our default, the way that we think we're supposed to live this life. True blessing and happiness, they're not found in things. They're not found in circumstances. They're not found in relationships. They're only found in Jesus. The blessed life is found in living a life that's devoted to Jesus, living according to his ways. He's instructed us on what it means to live this life. 
These are his words telling us how we are to live. It's what we should look at in the Sermon on the Mount that I'm encouraging you to read daily over the next six weeks. Because these are the words of life. They're the ones that show us what it looks like to live life as God intended. To live lives that are worthy of our calling. That we've received his love, his mercy, and his goodness, and we are called his beloved children. So let's not put our hope in the things of the world. Let's not put our hope even in what maybe other Christians would put their hope in. Let's put our hope firmly in Jesus alone. In Jesus alone, let's put our hope because his words and teachings are the very words of life. He is the word that's before all things, the uncreated word of God who's come near to us in the incarnation. So let's pay careful attention to what he said. Let's pay careful attention to how he's instructed us to live. Not so that we can be filled with knowledge, not so that we can ace the test, but so that we can live this out, so that we can live lives that are pleasing to God. Stand with me as I pray. Father, we come to you poor in spirit, recognizing that we can't do it on our own, that our righteousness is like filthy rags, that we can't earn our way to you, that no matter what good we do, it's never enough. We come to you humbly through Jesus, who took our place, who died upon the cross for our sins, He said, even though they can't do it, I can. And we ask you to transform us this morning. Help us see that that the blessed life is not in things or circumstances or, or relationships, but the blessed life is in you, Jesus. Help us to submit ourselves and to to humble ourselves at your feet. To be people of meekness people that hunger and thirst for the things of God. And we want to be conformed to the image of Christ. We want your thoughts to overcome our thoughts. Your ways to overcome our ways. And we cry out this morning, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me? from this life of suffering. Let us also proclaim thanks be to God. For Jesus Christ is the one who has given us freedom. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.